Welcome to the podcast, The Caring Scientist, Mission Sustainable. This is the podcast where we discuss sustainability in science and we give you hands-on tips on how you can reduce the environmental impact of your lab work. Welcome to this first episode of 2022. As you probably know by now, lab work has a massive environmental impact. And that's not only due to the intensive use of energy and water, but also very much due to the products that we use in the lab. The focus of this episode is therefore sustainable procurement and products for the lab. And we have invited Raj Pate from My Green Lab to help us shed light on this topic. Raj, can you introduce yourself, My Green Lab, and your role at My Green Lab? Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me to be part of this today. And it's really just exciting to, to be here. So yeah, so my name is Raj Patey and I work with My Green Lab, who are a not-for-profit organisation with a mission to build a global culture of sustainability in science. My focus on My Green Lab is very much the ACT label programme, an eco-label for lab consumables, chemicals and equipment, which we'll, I think, going to talk about more today. And alongside that, My Green Lab operate a whole series of programmes and initiatives, which are all about really working across the industry to achieve our mission and to bring the science world and the lab world to a place where all the amazing work continues, but it's much more in balance with people and the planet. Wonderful. Can you tell us a bit more about the ACT label? The ACT label is our eco-nutrition label for labs consumables, chemicals and equipment. ACT itself is an acronym. A is for accountability, so it's about manufacturers being accountable to their customers for what's going into their products. C is about consistency, having the same standardised approach, whether it is a chemical, a consumable or a piece of equipment, for example. And T is about transparency, which to me is the most powerful one. Because it's about having that transparent relationship between people making things for labs and people using things in labs to really drive informed decision making. Think about the labels, you know, that you've got in your breakfast cereal or your pizza or your bread or whatever you're buying at the supermarket that are there with simple colours and numbers to explain nutritional information. Now translate this into the space of everything you're buying for your lab. And again, look to have a standardised way with numbers and colours and simple data to express the sustainability information of the products that you're bringing into your lab. So put another way, ACT is a way of holistically looking at lab products and measuring sustainability criteria. Very nice. How would you define sustainable procurement? And can we ever reach a state where procurement for labs is sustainable? That is such a great question and such a difficult question to answer, I think. I don't think there's there's like any one simple answer to that. And I think a, a really important prerequisite, even before we answer that question, is that we have to we have to meet people where they are today and then and look to move forwards because we can't, for example, limit the ability of science to continue to do the great work it's doing. We can't hold it back because of sustainability, you could argue. Sometimes when people think about, you know, what does sustainable procurement mean or what is a sustainable product? And especially sometimes on the kind of product development side of things, people kind of go, well, oh, but is that going to reduce the quality of the product or the performance of the product? And actually, no, sustainability absolutely has to sit alongside a quality product that performs the right way. And of course, also is operates in a safe way or doesn't detract from the wider safety of, of the experiment or test being done today. I guess, you know, kind of one ultimate goal 
would be that um, the lab supply chain could become a more or fully closed loop system you know, where all plastics are recycled, where metals go back into feed further production of those products or other products elsewhere in the world. And those are just two examples. There's many more ways we could define a closed loop system. But I think a lot of that is a long way off. And the most important thing, I think, is that we keep taking small steps, like everything we do in sustainability, towards that that sustainable procurement system and maybe we'll get there one day but actually you could argue that if we can get a good percentage of the way there we'll be so far ahead of where we are now. Very true, good point. I think most of the information that people get on sustainability in labs or greener labs is very often focused on reducing plastic, turning off equipment, considering how much water your autoclaves are using and how much you use your autoclave. And of course, these things are also very important, but the products or the use of products, in my opinion, is, is very often not stressed enough. Can you explain to us why is it important to consider which products you use and how many in, in a lab context when it comes to sustainability? We actually um, released at COP26 a, a new paper, which is called The Impact of Biotech and Pharma Study. I don't know whether, whether you've had a chance to see this. Yeah, I already looked at it. We're going to put a link for it in the in the show notes. Essentially, this looked at publicly listed companies. So unfortunately, we didn't have as part of this data on universities and private companies, but it's still a very good insight, nevertheless. And what it found, amongst other things, is that for the biotech and pharma sector, the impact of scope three emissions is up to five times larger than those in scope one and two, so by the directly controlled emissions. And so, of course, this encompasses both their supply chain and what they're putting out there. I can add that the University of Copenhagen has actually also estimated its total carbon footprint on like many universities, because some universities are not that far at all. They're not really estimating anything. And if they do, they estimate their scopes one and two. And that means their local emissions, right? Things that don't include all the products they buy and the waste they produce. And uh, for the University of Copenhagen, first of all, labs make up 20% of the total carbon footprint, but also up to 90% of the carbon footprint of the University of Copenhagen comes from scope three. So it's not about electricity, it's not about the gasoline for the university cars, it's all the products, all the services, and all the waste that they, they get rid of. So it's absolutely key to look at what enters the door of the university to reduce their carbon footprint. And that's that's the same story we hear with slightly different numbers, but they're always in the same direction from many, many other organisations as well. There's two sides to this, but when you put them together, the sum is much greater, you could argue. So yes, there's there's all the areas around what you could, I guess, define as lab behaviour, how you use things, what you use. And then there's all the things you bring into your lab but maybe the ultimate solution is really to consider these together. I mean, before you even consider how sustainable is this product you're thinking of buying today, consider do you even need to buy it? Or do you need to buy it in the volume that you buy it in? Or is there an alternative? And an alternative is sometimes just a more sustainable version of that product. An alternative is maybe a complete change to the process, which means you don't need it in the first place. So or maybe minimizing. So yes, we do need it, but we found out that we only need 50% of what we normally used because we could do exactly the same workflow, but with a smaller input. Yeah, exactly. I, I made that exact point actually to someone in procurement a few months ago. I remember, in fact, a few years ago, I attended a, a conference at Birmingham University and there was a presentation from a group there on gloves. 
So everyone knows, obviously, that glove usage is absolutely massive in the, in the lab space. And so this, this group had looked at what gloves do we use, which different types, how many do we use, and fundamentally, when do we decide to pull another set of gloves out of the box and put them on our hands? And to kind of summarise simply, you know, they had, I think, a fairly simplistic protocol at that stage. You know, it was worst-case scenario protocol, which resulted in changing their gloves very, very often. When they actually stood back and thought about it, and thought, actually, could we go from one protocol to two or three, bit of simple education, signage, etc., in the lab space. That's not difficult for everyone in the lab to adopt. And as a result, there are scenarios where we don't need gloves at all. There are scenarios where we need gloves, but to change them less often. And there are scenarios where we need to change gloves more often. And as a result, they reduced their glove usage massively. And of course, as a bonus, the cost of their gloves as well. Just by standing back and thinking, why are we even doing it this way? That's a really good example. I mean, I think, of course, the best thing you can do is simply to use less. Yes. But of course, then second step is like, what do you use then? And that's where the act label, for example, comes into play, right? Mm-hmm. So if we do need something, then at least try to get something that is, let's say, more sustainable or more green to reduce the impact that the products have on, on the planet. Yes, yes. Can you uh, give a few examples of how lab products can be optimized in terms of environmental impact? Because, of course, it's much more than just the cardboard and the plastic they arrive in. Your point there that there's so much more than just the packaging or just this or just that is is absolutely spot on. And it's funny to even say historically when it comes to sustainability, because it still feels like a, a relatively new area for a lot of people. But historically, if people were thinking about a piece of equipment and people still do this, People would zero in on just what's the energy consumption, for example. If they were thinking about some pipette tips or some tubes, you know, consumable plastics, they would just think about what's the recyclability of this and can I do it in my institute? But actually, if we think what really is a more sustainable product, one way to think about this is just to think about what we look at on the act label and what what things about the product would give it a really great act score. It would start off with the factory where, for example, it's clearly demonstrable that the manufacturer is really working hard to reduce the energy and the water and the waste at that factory. Is that factory using renewable energy as well? Um, Because the energy used in production can sometimes be a very large part of the overall impact. A great act score will also be from a product where the environmental management system in place in the production area is something like ISO 14001, which I'm sure people have heard more and more about. But equally, it doesn't have to be. It could be procedures and protocols that adhere to similar approaches. And also where if there are chemicals in use, whether in production or chemicals being put in the hands of customers, and sometimes a chemical in the hand of a customer is obvious. It's a bottle of chemicals or reagent. Sometimes it's things like in a freezer where there's refrigerants, there can be toxic and non-toxic versions of those, for example. So it's a well-managed environmental management system with less toxic chemicals, for example. And in an ideal world, it's a it's a product where the distance between where it's made and where it ends up is as low as it's um, possible for it to be. So what we're really talking about here is is kind of the shipping impact side of things. So then when we come to the product itself and the packaging, It's about where do the materials come from? If I'm thinking of a glass washer, for example, with a steel chassis and a steel case, I could be using 100% virgin steel or I could be using quite a high percentage of recycled steel. If I'm looking at a pipette rack, 
The pipette tips are probably well, pretty much have to be still, unfortunately, um, virgin oil-based content, but the rack itself could be from other materials or from that are more sustainably sourced or from recycled sources, for example. And the same for the packaging again. Uh, you know, ideal packaging is coming 100% from sustainable sources versus virgin sources. And then there's, of course, as you talked about earlier, the usage phase, if you like, when it's in the hands of the end user. If it's a bit of equipment, does it use energy and water? And of course, you, it's difficult to move away from it. If I take um, 10 autoclaves, they're all going to use a lot of energy and water. But it still doesn't mean it's not a bad thing to encourage changes in technology, changes in use, etc., change in application to reduce that energy and water. So the lower, the better. And then, as I mentioned earlier, a great Axcore also looks for longevity in the products as well. What, one analogy, actually, that, um, that we used to use in the past was you can hear about the new iPhone and they'll tell you about all the amazing materials and manufacturing behind it. And you think, wow, that, that should last forever, right? But in two years or something, you're probably desperately trying to buy a new one. So what's that product really designed for? What's the true longevity of it? And that varies, of course. You know, for a use once consumable, it's difficult to get anything but the worst act score for that. But there can be where parts of a parts of a consumable are reusable, like maybe the pipette racks, for example. For chemicals and reagents, it's probably fair to say that the longer the shelf life, for example, once opened, the less likely it is to get wasted. So the more it can be modified or changed to last longer once opening, the less likely it is to be wasted. And then for equipment, we're really considering 20 years to be a great lifetime. So we're really trying to encourage that the iPhone lasts 20 years. And what do we mean by last 20 years? Well, we mean that for as much as that period as is practical for the manufacturer, it's actually warranted. But really importantly, it's actually it's, it's serviceable and supportable for that. So we have a couple of act labels, I think, where people have got really good scores on that scale. And it's because they've been able to show us data for, hey, we've been making this type of equipment for, for decades now. And we have data that shows a very high percentage of the ones we produced in that time are out there in labs being used. Our engineers are still be able to service and repair them. So it's a genuine long lifetime for the product. That's really wonderful. We, we're coming from a point in kind of the evolution of products where we, we've unfortunately gone through a phase where things were, you could argue, being designed to fail because there was an interest actually in, well, all we're targeted on is selling more. How can we sell more? Well, if they, if they can't use that one, they'll have to buy another one, right? Now, for a whole range of reasons, we're seeing, we're seeing people have to think differently. We're seeing that, for example, big pharma and biotech are saying to new manufacturers entering the marketplace, Actually, we don't care so much anymore about the ultimate a few dollars here and there on the price of your product. What we want to hear is that your product can help contribute towards reducing our carbon impact. So we really want to encourage you to when you design that product, we're going to be more interested to know that it's going to last a long time than it's just 20% lower in cost, for example. But all products do at some point come to the end of their life, which is the final part, you could argue, of getting a great act score. So again, for the products and the packaging, what's going to happen to them? So that is thinking about what materials are in there. It's also maybe thinking a bit about the construction. There was an example a, a few years ago of something where I think something like 65% of the materials should be easily recyclable. But it turned out due to the way they were bonded to the other materials in there, that wasn't going to happen. When we consider what's a great act score for end of life, we do factor in as well as 
what materials are in there, how readily recyclable they are they, things like does the manufacturer have an end of life program for equipment that's increasingly becoming a, a you know a more positive approach shall we say a manufacturer who says when it reaches end of life we have directly or via a third party a program where we will ensure a better outcome for that those materials will we have a path for as much of the materials as possible back into our supply chain or, or someone else's supply chain and finally yeah a material can be readily recyclable but maybe it's not safely recyclable depending on the usage scenario so that that has to be taken into account as well so sort of to summarize all the ways that products can be optimized in terms of environmental impact, it's really, it goes from sourcing of the raw materials and also what the raw materials are, how they are manufactured into whatever object that we want to use in the lab, how it's shipped, how it's packaged, how it's transported, all of that, how it's used, like does it generate a lot of waste, is it safe to handle, and then finally how is it disposed of, like where does it actually end up or is it recyclable? Is it being taken back by by the manufacturer? Correct. Now, of course, uh, the Act label is it's short for accountability, consistency, and transparency. And that makes me think like transparency is, of course, exactly what we need to avoid greenwashing, for example, right? I definitely get the feeling when I browse around various websites, also in the in the lab product sphere that there's a lot of greenwashing. There are many of these self-made little green icons that look like a little tree or a little leaf mm -hmm. where a manufacturer or a vendor is claiming this product has reduced environmental impact. Yeah. And very often it's also true. It is reduced, but it's reduced by less than 0.1%. So it's not significant, right? It's actually not important. It's not going to make a huge difference anyway. Do you have any tips for lab users or procurement people how you can distinguish between what's greenwashing and what's the significant green impact? Yeah, no, you are 150% right. It's it's unfortunately still the case that there is a fair amount of greenwashing out there in this industry and, and every other industry. I think um, it's also fair to say that though, especially in the scientific community, people are becoming better and better informed, more and more aware. And this is driving manufacturers to take less that approach, like you said, of a green leaf in the corner, maybe. But yeah, how, how do you go about approaching this as a lab user, maybe, or a lab purchaser? Well, I think like everything in science, you could argue it should be backed by data. Just making a claim without any information or data or context, you, you wouldn't take that claim in, in any context, let alone purchasing for your lab. I think that the industry is also recognising that things like the ACT label, which are third party verified, also make a big difference as well. So you mentioned when it came to the acronym, the C, consistency. One of the core drivers of why ACT ever came into existence was we were doing all the work with our Green Lab certification programme, for example, around behaviour in the lab. And then it became obvious, but what about supply chain? And if you went out to manufacturers at that point, and still a lot of time at that at this point as well, and said, help, we want information about the sustainability of, of, um, of the equipment or the consumables or the chemicals. You've got a range of answers from, we don't know, and we really don't kind of even care, through to, we've got loads of information, and some of it's in that PDF on page seven, and some of it's on that website there, and some of it's in my colleague's head, but you didn't put a clear picture. And you mix that in with, if you're a, a manufacturer or a vendor, 
that you're dealing with 20 customers today and each of them is asking you questions about sustainability but in 20 different ways it's just not practical so therefore the c inconsistency is primarily for me about the same standardized approach for everything we look at you can argue that having such a flat line like that brings with it plus and minus points but the big plus point is it brings a consistent approach to everything and that it's third party verified means that it's not a case that the manufacturer is measuring or making claims themselves. They're being assessed against a standardised scale and everyone is being assessed against that standardised scale. And I think in terms of where that takes you and your thought process against greenwashing as well, of course, what that's really doing is guiding you towards that, that holistic approach. And if the final point I'd make is when you're thinking about the suppliers that you work with is, you know, having looked at the data through things like the Act Label, hopefully seeing that that data is third party verified when we talk holistically are they are they a, a manufacturer or vendor that is conveying to you a true ethos or culture of sustainability do you get that feeling in all your dealings with them that they are really thinking about these things maybe they're making claims at the board level about signing up to th things like race to zero maybe they're making some little tweaks with a green leaf to a product at the other end of the cycle how are they joining all this together because the most forward-thinking manufacturers that we work with, you're really starting to see the dots join internally and the result really you know, accelerate very fast in terms of what they present out to the market that isn't greenwashing. I have to say, I mean, when I have, and I have looked after a lot of green products on a lot of websites, and I'm, I'm also the skeptical type when it comes to, to green products, right? And me. But I don't believe any of them. I mean, I think ACT is such a wonderful label because exactly for the reasons that you explained, right? It's a third party actually evaluating their green impact or their not so green impact. Whereas when you look at the websites, it's it's so random what kind of data they, they put there. And sometimes there's no data whatsoever. It just says it's been like it's a more sustainable product. But other times I've also seen data where I'm like, this data is not telling me anything. For example, for certain gloves that supposedly are greener. And then what they claim is that they were produced with 17% less water consumption compared to conventional production methods, right? And then I'm like, what is conventional production? And is any glove in the world even produced with conventional glove production ways, right? I mean, I wouldn't know that. So you're comparing two things where I have no idea what you're comparing to. Yeah, I don't know. I just think even with numbers, I'm like... I mean, they are cranking up a lot of numbers or, you know, twerking them in a way where at least it's more than 10% of something and then, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think maybe a good analogy or maybe a bad analogy, but there's a street in Manchester with lots lots of uh, Indian restaurants. And when you walk down there, everyone seems to have a sign on it which says, voted best Indian restaurant in Manchester 2021 or something. And you think, well, they can't all be the best one. And if you if you read the small print, if there is a small print, it might say, as judged by uh, John Smith, who came in last <laughs> week. This is, you know, this is not verified by anyone else. There's no standardisation of approach or anything. But actually, you do remind me of, of another important point, actually, which is having an ACT label does not say you have a sustainable product. Because of the 10 or so categories on the label that can be scored from 1 to 10 for most of them. Energy and water are actually absolute measures. You can get a 10. If you could buy just a pipette tip, not with a rack and everything else, it's going to get a 10, full stop. 
it's not it's not about sticking a rubber stamp on a product to say yay it's got an act label it's green it's sustainable it's about genuinely measuring where something is at the moment driving it to improve in the future and transparently and clearly and consistently communicating that information to the customer so they can make an informed decision yeah I think it's, uh, it's, it's very important to stress, yes, that an act label does not mean it's green. It means this company has been honest enough to disclose yes. how this product was produced and all of these things. And then it gets a score. Yes. So in that way, it's different from, for example, let's say the organic labels that food can have. That's like there's a threshold. And if you're above it, check you are organic, right? Here, it's not like you're green. It's more like you're honest and you're willing to disclose your numbers. Correct. And then, of course, it also means that there are potentially green products out there that don't have an act label. Yes. We just don't have, we haven't had the chance to look through the numbers in an act framework. No, and and I think an important point, you, you make the point there that it's an acknowledgement that a, a company or a manufacturer has been willing to be open, been willing to be examined. I think that holds so much value in the marketplace now as well. Personally, I think I, I place more emphasis, more respect on a manufacturer's got maybe not the greatest act score, but is willing to stand by it, then a manufacturer is not willing to engage on that. And when I ask people in procurement, they, they give that same feedback. You know, they will give favour to, to companies who are thinking like that. Because, of course, like everything in sustainability, it's a journey of evolution. And actually, we've now been doing app for long enough. You know, we've, it's accelerated a lot. We're now up around 3,000 labels with many more in the audit process at the moment as well. And we're now also three and a half years into the program and each label is valid for two years. So we've had several hundred labels go through recertification as well. And so what's really interesting out of this is, is a couple of things. One is that we have a 100% recertification rate. So that tells us that whether you're a manufacturer kind of being led, shall we say, by, by data and spreadsheets or whether you're the wider consumer market finding use in the tool, it's working. We're seeing manufacturers doing more and more of their catalogs, which is exactly what customers are asking for customers you know you asked about greenwashing a criticism that's sometimes made of organizations is you can't claim just because you have one green product that your organization is green hence my comment about looking for organizations with a, a true culture or or ethos of sustainability but what we're seeing from that data as we go through recertifications and also as we look at the the wider kind of general picture is we're seeing the scores genuinely coming down so that means they're becoming greener. Very important prerequisite of ACT, as well, as well as the it's not a rubber stamp, say your green product, is in most of the world, bigger, better. In ACT world, and hopefully in sustainability, this, this is, fits nicely, less is more. So the lower the ACT score, the more sustainable the product. If you have, like you said earlier, if you take a something that's made, that all it is is a small bit of, consumable made out of virgin plastic its product content score will be 10 10 means no sustainable content in that product one means very high percentage sustainable content in that product and other numbers are on a sliding scale so yeah so we're seeing the industry well at least through the data we have from who's being act labeled whether it's new labels adding to existing product categories or whether it's people doing recertification we're seeing those score those scores come down which we think is is really quite exciting. We only actually started to see enough data to see that recently. And the other thing I said, I said it's an evolution and it's a journey. 
ACT is part of that journey. So ACT will continue to update in subsequent years as well. There will be more granularity added. There will be new areas added to it as well. When we first um, conceived of ACT, hardly any companies or institutes had solid impact reduction goals. Now, many or even most of the people in this industry do. So now there are different measures and metrics that we need to try and include and wrap up as part of ACT to align with people's goals as well. So in that way, it's really both aiding the consumers and the purchasers in in picking the greener products, but also the manufacturers in actually setting setting ambitious, realistic goals about how to reduce the environmental impact of the products they produce. Definitely. We, we, we cannot achieve our mission with just purely having a, a consumer label. We need to actually help the manufacturers and guide the manufacturers to do better with their products in the future. Sustainability is so often thought about as something you add on at the end when you've done everything else. So true. When you make a product, you make the product, you do the website, you give it to the salespeople, and then you go, oh yeah, we should come up with some sustainability arguments now, which is where greenwashing comes from. Very true. When you go to the other end and you embed it in your culture, now making a more sustainable product is just a natural part of the design process. It doesn't cost more to do at that stage. It doesn't generate more effort because it's just a natural part of your process. Similarly, I think when you're working in your lab or procuring for your lab, the more you think about sustainability and embed it in your culture, the more you maybe design your experiment in a different way. Maybe or you pick a different chemical to, to procure next and it just becomes part of our everyday approach to things. Really good point. So... You are definitely influencing how manufacturers are doing their thing. Now I'm wondering what can lab users and procurement people do to also influence manufacturers and vendors in a greener direction? So really the main thing that everyone can do in that group and wider is just keep applying pressure. I know it sounds quite simple, but in the end, the suppliers are there, you know, commercial entities. And they are driven by their customers. Most of these organizations are very, very customer-centric. You as, an, you as a purchasing organization are looking to reduce your, your emissions. They, as part of that, need to help you with that. And, to put it bluntly, if they don't, over time, they may not be your supplier anymore. We do a lot of work to persuade them and help them in the way that we've talked about a lot already today. But when they hear it from their customers, it's like 20 times of talking to me. In fact, it's, it's like they've got bored of hearing from me, but now they're hearing from someone who they really care about. <laughs> so. so more specifically, of course, if you if your institute or your company has specific targets, that's a really good leverage to use, let's say, against uh, the vendors and the manufacturers to say, so we have these targets and in order to achieve them, we need you to do things as well. Otherwise, you might not be our preferred option in the in the future. But there are also many institutions, unfortunately, that don't have climate targets yet. So for these people, of course, they should also put pressure, right? And I guess then you can't really say we have these targets, you have to do something as well. But I guess just asking questions about how are you sourcing your raw materials? Are you using renewable energy in your facilities? How are you doing your shipping? I guess all of these questions will also put pressure. Yeah, think about, I mean, you could put it another way. Some things have ACT labels, some things don't have ACT labels. But that shouldn't stop you from thinking in the same way. And in terms of this pressure on, on manufacturers to, or 
Pressure is maybe a negative word. Let's say motivation or um, assistance in making their business cases in order to do more. One picture I always have in my head is that, you know, if you take all the universities in Europe, for example, any big vendor has a team of salespeople out visiting those customers, talking to those customers. Once a month, maybe they all get together for a sales meeting and they say, what do you hear from the market? What we know from what we hear is that more and more of them are coming back and saying, we're getting beaten up by our customers around our sustainability criteria, what they are now, what we're doing to improve them. The more that everyone out there is saying to their local salesperson, this is important to us, whether it's because of organisational level goals, or maybe they're just a passionate individual. But in the end, people make decisions and they have the power to make decisions. And if you're a passionate individual and you have the power to choose product, then you can still influence that. Eventually what happens is someone says, do you know what, this is limiting our sales, so we need to do something about it. Yes. So Raj, where can our listeners find information about the ACT label and which brands and which products have already received an ACT label? So the simplest thing you can do is if you go to act.mygreenlab.org, there you will find the ACT database. It's searchable, it's filterable. You can, for example, say, show me consumables from these two companies. And when you click on each label in there, and you will see in there for most products now, you'll see three labels. You'll see an EU label, a UK label, and a US label. And that is because when it comes to things like shipping impacts and also end-of-life scenarios, they can vary. Something can be, for example, more easily recyclable in one market than another. And you can also download information from there. And actually, one other important point, if there are people, for example, in procurement areas listening today, is that we have the ability with the ACT database to have it integrate or talk to other databases. Very nice. Thank you so much for taking part, Raj. It was really interesting to uh, to talk to you and hear your perspective on on uh, sustainable procurement for labs. Yes, certainly. And thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this today. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to get in touch, please feel free to email us at podcast at avasustain.com. That is podcast at avasustain.com. We've also put this email address and other useful links in the notes below this podcast. Till next time.